Welcome to episode 33 of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. Before we jump into today's episode, there are a string of natural disasters occurring throughout the country right now. I honestly could not tell you which portion of the country hasn't experienced some sort of heat wave at this point. Everywhere from the Pacific Northwest to the Southeast, temperatures have soared well into the triple digits. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, four died as a result due to the extreme temperatures. We have to remember that not everyone has the ability to escape somewhere into the refuge of air-conditioned buildings. There are thousands that are homeless that must fight to survive throughout these deadly weather extremes. 90 communities throughout the country have set records for the temperature extremes we are currently facing. Last year, heat waves cost the United States an estimated $145 billion in damages. President Joe Biden announced a $2.3 billion funding package for FEMA that includes funds to combat climate change and enhance infrastructure that is able to withstand the inevitability that we will all face. In addition to this, the Department of Health and Human Services issued guidance that provides an expansion on low-income energy assistance programs, one of which is the establishment of cooling centers, which may include partnering with other public facilities, such as local libraries, community centers, and government buildings to establish a waiting area where people can remain cool during the hottest periods of the day, that is usually 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. It might also include coordinating with emergency response teams in states, tribes, territories, and localities to ensure that they are aware of cooling centers on how to refer people to LIHEAP for immediate needs, how to help move homebound individuals to cooling centers if needed, and other related issues. In addition to the extreme heat waves that we are seeing throughout the country, there are nearly 1,200 wildfires burning actively. That's a total of 5,479,513 acres actively burning. These wildfires come at a time when inflation and gas prices put a prohibitive strain on those who may be needing to evacuate and not being able to afford fuel. On the other side of the spectrum, Kentucky and West Virginia is dealing with some of the worst flooding each of the states have experienced. The confirmed death toll stands at 25. A cold front brought in clearer weather to flood-stricken areas on Saturday, giving rescue personnel one obstacle fewer to contend with as they work to pluck more residents off rooftops. More than 600 people have been rescued by aircraft by National Guard troops from Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia, Governor Bashir said. He added that the Kentucky State Police and the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources has assisted in the rescues of more than 700 people by boat. The flooding also disrupted water systems across the region, a concern as Kentucky residents face the possibility of another heat wave next week. Over 25,000 homes and businesses were without water on Saturday, the governor said, adding that nearly 30,000 more had service but had been advised to boil their water. 
please check the show notes as I will be providing a link to the state of Kentucky's website where they have provided donation links to help those affected. If you are able to, please consider donating. So, this week we're going to be covering a catastrophic earthquake and tsunami that impacted various cities and towns along the Alaskan coastline back in 1964. This earthquake remains the most powerful to ever occur within the United States and is the second most powerful measured in the world. Measured at a magnitude 9.2, this earthquake caused roadways to buckle, railways to become impassable, coastlines eroded, and a tsunami that would crash into communities, further devastating them. In the early afternoon at 5.36 p.m. Alaska Standard Time on Good Friday, or March 27, 1964, a catastrophic magnitude 9.2 earthquake struck at a depth of 16 miles or 25 kilometers and approximately 120 kilometers east of Anchorage, Alaska. On March 27, 1964, at 5.36 p.m. Alaska Standard Time, a fault between the Pacific and North American plates ruptured near College Fjord in Prince William Sound. The epicenter of the earthquake was 12.4 miles north of Prince William Sound, 78 miles east of Anchorage, and 40 miles west of Valdez. The focus occurred at a depth of approximately 15.5 miles. Ocean floor shifts created large tsunamis up to 220 feet or 67 meters in height, which resulted in many of the deaths and much of the property damage that we are going to discuss on this episode. Large rock slides were also caused, resulting in great property damage. Vertical displacement of up to 38 feet occurred, affecting an area of 100,000 square miles within Alaska. The Alaska earthquake was a megathrust earthquake caused by an oceanic plate sinking under a continental plate. The fault responsible was the Aleutian megathrust, a reverse fault caused by a compressional force. This caused much of the uneven ground, which is a result of ground shifted to the opposite elevation. This earthquake released more energy than the 1906 San Francisco earthquake that nearly destroyed the entire city. Lasting 4 minutes and 38 seconds, the magnitude 9.2 megathrust earthquake remains the most powerful earthquake recorded in North American history and the second most powerful earthquake recorded in world history. 600 miles of fault ruptured at once and moved up to 60 feet, releasing about 500 years of stress buildup. Soil liquefaction, fissures, landslides, and underground failures caused major structural damage in several communities and much damage to property. Anchorage sustained great destruction or damage to many inadequately earthquake-engineered houses, buildings, and infrastructures, which include paved streets, sidewalks, water and sewer mains, electrical systems, and other man-made equipment, particularly in the several landslide zones along Nick Arm. 200 miles southwest, some areas near Kodiak were permanently raised by 30 feet. Southeast of Anchorage, areas around the head of Turnigan Arm near Girdwood and Portage dropped as much as 8 feet, requiring reconstruction and fill to raise the Seward Highway above the new high tide mark. Luckily, this earthquake occurred at a time when everybody was nearly home for the day. Had this earthquake happened earlier in the day, we'd be talking about a far deadlier event. For those of you who have listened to previous episodes where we discuss earthquake, this earthquake was rated on the modified Mercalli intensity scale as a level 11 out of 12. On this rating of extreme earthquakes, few, if any, masonry structures remain standing, bridges are destroyed, broad fissures erupt in the ground, underground pipelines are rendered completely out of service, earth slumps, and land slips into soft ground. Rails are bent greatly. As heard earlier, this is exactly what was witnessed following the earthquake with some areas. Fissures opened up throughout cities and towns where some of the worst damage occurred. I think to get a true sense of just how violent and extreme this earthquake was, I think it's imperative that we listen directly to stories from the survivors. The upcoming 7 minutes of audio was made possible by the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Right away I got the announcer in Anchorage and he said there had been a terrible earthquake. He said Valdez has been wiped out. Cordova has been wiped out. 
And that was his words. <laughs> it's hard to explain how that hits you when you got a wife and kids and the announcer says that the towns have been wiped out. It scared me to death. And uh, right away I called Cordova. Bingo, they came back. And it was like a breath of heaven because the end said, we're fine, Larry. Don't listen to that Anchorage broadcaster. So we went on and done our work. And, and as we went around the sound, we seen devastation you couldn't believe. And was just filling shelves when all of a sudden it started to shake. The first, I'd felt earthquakes before, but little tiny things. When this one hit, it started to shake and things started falling off the shelves. But I'll tell you this, it was noisy, extremely noisy. A crunching, grinding noise. And at the same time, when the poles would whip in opposite directions, the line would go twing or twang or something. If you looked up the street, you could see waves coming down the street just like the ocean. I could feel the movement on the floor. So I went and I always heard the older people say, open the door. When there's an earthquake, you need to open the door. So I went and opened the door and I grabbed the two kids and went outside with them. Water was getting real rough. Then the water went out. The water started going out. You could see more of the beach. And somebody, I don't know who, Somebody hollered, uh, tidal wave. And we turned around and started just running, running up. And then the water just vanished, just like it fell in a hole. And when that hole closed up, it was like it shot it all back up. We're sitting in there, and all of a sudden, it, about 10 minutes after we were down the dock, it uh, started shaking. And when I looked out, I seen all these telephone poles are falling down and sparks flying all over the place, you know, electricity. And uh, they all jumped in my car and we were heading out the road. And when we were heading out the road, the ground opened up in front of us and, and then closed and water chewed up about 30 feet up in the air. After we got to Copper Center, I called home I tried to get a hold of uh, in, anybody that knew what happened down in the village. They, they told me that the village of Chenega was wiped out. It's a big, big loss to me, I mean, you know, Chenega. It, it just wouldn't stop, it just continued. And, and not only did it continue, but it just became stronger and stronger and stronger and it was just that real violent sharp shaking and uh, and I thought maybe the boiler at the elementary school had blown up I don't that usually meant no school the heat would be off but at the same time this this shaking is continuing and all the dishes are coming down out of the cabinets in the kitchen and glass was breaking and so it finally ended, but it really was, I think, close to five minutes, and that's a long, long time for earthquakes. All of a sudden, just at the front door was my father, and he's yelling. 
there's a tidal wave coming, we have to get to the top of the roof. Just see him so clear in my mind standing down there with, with my stuff and I'm just just screaming at him, it, it, it doesn't matter. Just, just you have to get up here and you, you, don't, you don't have any time to waste. And so he did and um, we jumped and it seems as if as soon as my dad got onto the house roof and we, we were all lying down with our hands and heads um, at the pitch of the roof and holding hands, that wave just hit so hard and so fast um, that that just in an instant, um, what had been a subdivision of probably 11 homes was instantly just gone. Everything just exploded or flattened. But uh, when that wave was coming down on us, we didn't worry about it too much because we knew from being sailors that waves out on the ocean travel about 15, 18 miles an hour. This baby was going about 50 miles an hour and it was standing up anywhere from 30 to 50 feet high and there was just white water peeling right off the top of it. And I jumped into a, an M37 military three-quarter ton pickup that we had there. And, uh, and I took off and started driving it inland and I didn't go 20 feet till that wave hit and just turned me up going end over end of that pickup. And I was underwater enough to where I was drowning and um, I was getting a lot of mud and water and dirt into my lungs and into my throat and um, then about that time the waves started going back to the ocean started taking me back. I was going back toward the ocean and I grabbed a an alder there and hung on till the water drained away and there I was, I was just like a beached sea lion laying there. We went up and stayed up quite a ways in the mountainside there until everybody came up. We knew who, who made it, who didn't make it about then. Yeah, Nick Kumkoff, he was hanging on to three daughters and trying to hang on a pole. He ended up losing two and saving one. And what kept her there was the, the zipper caught when the water was going out. The zipper caught and stayed, and that's what kept her there. But the oldest and the middle girl didn't make it. As you heard from these testimonials, the earthquake wasn't the only thing these residents had to fear on this day. A multitude of tsunamis impacted along the coast, some reaching astonishing heights of over 200 feet tall. Due to how close to land this quake occurred, it didn't leave much time to prepare for the tsunamis that would race to shore in the hours following the quake. In Shute Bay, the run-up tsunami reached over 200 feet high, crashing into the shore and taking a remote cabin with it. The deadliest effects of the tsunami were felt in Chenega, where the town experienced a wave impact four minutes following the earthquake, leaving no time to seek higher ground. The population at Chenega was decimated as the wave killed 23 people of the 76 residents. In Valdez, the town had been built upon the gravel and sand layer near the coast. As the earthquake subsided, the resulting tsunami took with it much of the town and population. Many of these coastal towns relied upon the fishing and oil industry. Following this disaster, much of that infrastructure had been destroyed, leaving many without a livelihood to rebuild what was lost. 
and Prince William Sound, this earthquake would lead to a run-up tsunami with a height of 104 feet impacting Whittier, Alaska. Whittier incurred $10 million in property damage. One of the waves, probably the same one that caused the major damage in Whittier, reached a height of 31.7 meters above low tide. At Whittier, the waves destroyed two sawmills, the Union Oil Company tank farm, wharf and buildings, the Alaska Railroad Depot, numerous frame dwellings, and the railroad ramp handling towers at the Army Pier. They also caused great damage to the small boat harbor. The tsunami killed 13 people at Whittier, then a community of 70 people. As the shaking subsided and the waves receded back into the ocean, the state of Alaska was left to clean up its first major natural disaster in a heavily populated area. The most damage occurred in Anchorage, 75 miles northwest of the epicenter. Anchorage was not hit by tsunamis, but downtown Anchorage was heavily damaged and parts of the city built on Sandy Bluffs overlying Bootlegger Cove near Cook Inlet, most notably the Turnigan neighborhood suffered landslide damage. The neighborhood lost 75 houses in the landslide, and the destroyed area has since been turned into Earthquake Park. The Government Hill School suffered from the Government Hill landslide, leaving it in two jagged, broken pieces. Land overlooking the Ship Creek Valley near the Alaska Railroad Yards also slid, destroying many acres of buildings and the city blocks in downtown Anchorage. Most other areas of the city were only moderately damaged. The 60-foot concrete control tower at Anchorage International Airport was not engineered to withstand earthquake activity and collapsed, killing William George Taylor, the Federal Aviation Agency air traffic controller on duty in the tower cab at the time the earthquake began. Monetarily, damage reflected approximately $311 million in 1964 currency or $2.9 billion in today's currency. Deaths as a result of this disaster were recorded at 131. Recovery efforts were arduous, to say the least, as shock glazed over many of the residents' eyes. Near immediately following the earthquake and tsunamis, the United States Army began assisting with disaster recovery efforts to include restoring communications with the lower 48 states and deploying soldiers to aid those affected. The United States military, which has a large active presence in Alaska, also stepped in to assist within moments of the end of the quake. The U.S. Army rapidly reestablished communications with the lower 48 states, deployed troops to assist the citizens of Anchorage, and dispatched a convoy to Valdez. On the advice of military and civilian leaders, President Lyndon B. Johnson declared all of Alaska a major disaster area the day after the quake. The United States Navy and United States Coast Guard deployed ships to isolated coastal communities to assist with immediate needs. Bad weather and poor visibility hampered air rescue and observation efforts the day after the quake. But on Sunday, the 29th, the situation improved and rescue helicopters and observation aircraft were deployed. A military airlift immediately began shipping relief supplies to Alaska, eventually delivering 2,570,000 pounds of food and other supplies. Broadcast journalist Jenny Chance assisted in recovery and relief efforts, staying on the KENI airwaves over Anchorage for more than 24 continuous hours as the voice of calm from her temporary post within the Anchorage Public Safety Building. She was effectively designated as the public safety officer by the city's police chief. Chance provided breaking news of the catastrophic events that continued to develop following the magnitude 9.2 earthquake, and she served as the voice of the public safety office, coordinating response efforts, connecting available resources to needs around the community, disseminating information about shelters and prepared food rations, passing messages of well-being between loved ones, and helping families to reunite. In the longer term, the United States Army Corps of Engineers led the effort to rebuild roads, clear debris, and establish new town sites for communities that had been completely destroyed, at a cost of $110 million. The West Coast and Alaska Tsunami Warning Center was formed as a direct response to this disaster. 
Federal disaster relief funds paid for reconstruction, as well as financially supporting the devastated infrastructure of Alaska's government, spending hundreds of millions of dollars that helped keep Alaska financially solvent until the discovery of massive oil deposits at Prudhoe Bay. In addition to the formation of the West Coast and Alaska Tsunami Warning Center, this disaster would lead to the formation of the Alaska Division of Emergency Services as well, which would lead the response to any future disasters that would occur in the state of Alaska. This agency has now evolved into what we know as the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. The Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management is the foremost agency within the executive branch of the state government of Alaska for assisting the governor of Alaska to fulfill the statutory responsibility of meeting the dangers presented by disasters to the state and its people. As we bring this episode to a close, this is why I always reinforce the readiness and preparedness portions of my episodes. At a moment's notice, any one of us can be sprung into a situation that forces us to act and sustain our own lives until help and assistance is able to respond and begin official operations. I want to thank you for listening this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it five stars and sharing to help our continued growth. As I stated at the beginning, please consider donating to those affected in the recent disasters that have been occurring throughout the United States. Finally, this show can only continue to grow with support from the audience. Please consider following the show on both Instagram and Twitter, as this will provide you with the most up-to-date information regarding upcoming episodes. Until next time, this has been Destination Disaster. Disaster.